Now you remember that in last week's passage, Paul highlighted both circumcision and baptism. And we saw that his emphasis there in those verses was on spiritual circumcision and spiritual baptism. The one reality to which these two signs pointed. And as we remembered, Paul is seeking to prevent the false teachers from doing damage to the Christians in this church in Colossae. Now, many false teachers in the early church taught that circumcision was necessary in order for Gentiles to be saved. Paul dealt with this in the Galatian churches as well. In order for a Gentile to be saved, they must first become a Jew. That was what was being taught by many of these Judaizers. And that most likely was at least part of what Paul was seeking to counter as he spoke about spiritual circumcision, a circumcision made without hands. And so Paul was countering the notion of the Judaizers that this Gentile, these Gentile Christians in Colossae, they needed to become Jews first. They had to go through the rites and the rituals of Judaism in order to be true followers of Jesus. As strange as this might sound, there is a strain of Christianity today that continues in this way of thinking. Messianic Judaism is a modern example. They seek to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. They're a little bit questionable, wishy-washy on whether Jesus was actually God in the flesh. But they seek to acknowledge that he's the Messiah who was foretold in the Hebrew Scripture. But they also continue to observe the Jewish Sabbath and all of the practices associated with it. As well as all of the Jewish holidays or holy days. And many Christians today, for one reason or another, observe Jewish dietary laws. But in the early church, Paul was combating these particular pernicious uh, Judaizers who made salvation in Christ conditional upon the believer's adherence to the ceremonial law. And he continues this fight against their errant teaching in our passage this morning, focusing on food restrictions and holy days, including festivals and Sabbath observance. Now most of us, we welcome the freedoms that we have and not being bound to eating only kosher foods. What would we do without bacon, I ask you? It would be a sad existence without being able to eat T-bone, porterhouse, or sirloin steaks, which aren't kosher. And so uh, Jews of this day and Messianic Jews won't eat the, 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 the back portion, the, the, the rear portion of, uh, of the cow. The food laws are pretty cut and dried for us. Most of us, we don't seek to to adhere to the the kosher dietary restrictions. We understand that they're no longer binding on us. But what about the Sabbath? It's the one question that has perplexed the church since Jesus and his disciples plucked heads of uh, of grain in in a field on the Sabbath. It's a question that continues uh, down to our day. How are we to observe the Sabbath? Do we even have to? Has it been, as some have said, abrogated, done away with? Has it passed away because along with the, the, the ceremonial law? As we work our way through these, uh, these few verses that we have before us this morning, I would ask you to consider this thought. God instituted the Sabbath so that the rest that we enjoy one day each week would point to the eternal rest we receive from Christ. God instituted the Sabbath so that the rest we enjoy one day each week would point to the eternal rest we receive from Christ. The sermon is divided into three parts. The first part, food and drink, festivals and days. The second part, worship and rest. And the third part, day of resurrection. So again, food and drink, festivals and days. The second part, worship and rest. And the third 
day of resurrection. So let's look at the first part of the sermon now, food and drink, festivals and days. In our brief sermon passage, Paul tells the Colossian Christians not to let anyone pass judgment on them in questions of food, drink, festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. And as we mentioned in the intro, we've got a pretty good grasp on what he means regarding the freedoms we have in the New Testament era with food. Acts 10 is very clear where Peter has this vision and he's commanded in that vision to take the food, the food that Peter would never have touched, take it up and eat it. And we're okay with that. We're, we're good with that. But we're still pretty confused over what he means when he refers to Sabbaths. In verse 17, he describes all of these things as a shadow of the things to come. And in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, the author of Hebrews describes the sacrifices that the priests in the Old Testament offered. And indeed, all of the sacrificial system is a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Hebrews 10.1 is even more clear in its description of the sacrificial system as a shadow. And the verses following make it clear that now, that now that Christ, the reality that the shadows represented has come, the shadows are now gone. Think about a shadow for a moment. It's the most basic kind of visual representation of something. In the sacrifices of the Old Testament, as shadows, they were a prevision of Christ's body, the body given as the final, once for all, sacrifice for sinners. Now, shadows lack contour, they lack three dimensions. But they give a, 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 at least a basic and a recognizable representation of the thing that they represent. Because the reality Jesus Christ has come and was sacrificed on the cross, the shadows no longer exist. So the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament, connected as they were to the sacrificial system and the ceremonial law, they're abolished. And so Paul can tell the Colossian Christians that they should not let anyone pass judgment on them with regard to meat and drink. There is no such thing as being ceremonial unclean if someone is in Christ. There is no ceremonial impurity. Eat what you want. But... I'm against bugs, I just have to say. Don't make me eat bugs, please. However, Paul isn't directly concerned here with mosaic dietary restrictions. Indirectly, yes, he's concerned with them because they were part of the ceremonial law. But directly, he's thinking about something else. You see, in, in the Old Testament ceremonial law, there weren't really, or rather the, uh, the, the Old Testament uh, uh, dietary restrictions, there weren't really any restrictions on drink. However, Jewish rabbis did take the Torah's prohibition of eating a young goat cooked in its mother's milk in Exodus 23.19 and other places. That prohibition shows up in a few places in the Old Testament. Rabbis took that to mean that they could not have meat and dairy products in the same meal. And you will see Orthodox conservative Jews in our day. They won't have dairy products and meat in the same meal because they take that as a restriction on what they may eat. Paul is directly concerned with the sacrificial system. And he's directly making reference to the meat and drink offerings in that system. And so understanding this will help us to understand what Paul means when he refers to festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. That phrase, festivals, new moons, and Sabbath, it shows up in slightly different variations six different times in the Old Testament. But the common thread between festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths were the sacrifices offered up by the priests on behalf of the people on those days. Festivals refers to the important feast days of the Old Testament, the Day of, the, the day of Atonement, Jewish New Year, the Feast of Booths, etc., 
Festivals of the new moons were minor Jewish festivals during which fasting and mourning are not allowed. This happened once a month at the new moon. Jews in the Old Testament would visit the temple in Jerusalem for a special sacrifice on that day. In fact, sacrifices were prescribed in Numbers 28 and 29 for each day, each weekly Sabbath, each new moon, and each of the numerous annual feasts. And as the OPC General Assembly on Sabbath Matters, this committee on Sabbath Matters reported in the 1973 Assembly, whenever it occurs in the Old Testament, the phrase Sabbaths, new moons, and feasts always has reference to the sacrificial to the official sacrifices to be offered on those days in behalf of the covenant nation and never refers to individual observance of those days. So what does this mean? You want to know, what what does it mean? Are the Sabbath laws, or is the Sabbath itself, is it still binding? Is it incumbent upon me to observe the Sabbath? Well, all of this does not mean that the Sabbath itself has been abrogated or done away with as many have come to believe. What it does mean is that the sacrifices offered on those days, those high holy days, the festivals, the new moons, the Sabbaths, the sacrifices have been done away with. And so Paul is telling them that they have been set free from the ceremonial regulations surrounding the Sabbath. But what about Christians in our day? That brings us to the the second point in the sermon, worship and rest. Today in the church, we run the gamut from completely ignoring that the Sabbath exists to treating the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, in exactly the same manner that the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. So our calling is to avoid either extreme and see the Lord's Day as a gift from God. By Paul's day, the Jewish Sabbath was attended by many rules and obligations for the Jewish believer. According to one account, under the influence of Pharisaic rigorism, A system of minute and burdensome regulations was elaborated while the higher purpose of the Sabbath was lost sight of. The oldest and most highly regarded rabbinic writings on the law's treatise of the Sabbath enumerates 39 main heads of forbidden actions, each with subdivisions. Among the main heads are such trifling actions as weaving two threads, sewing two stitches, writing two letters, etc. You get the point, the idea. Judaism had had so many laws that had accrued to the Sabbath day. You can't, do, you can't weave two threads together on the Sabbath day. You can't stitch two stitches on the Sabbath day. Even today, Messianic Judaism follows closely on the, on the position of Orthodox Judaism with regard to what may be done on the Sabbath. So for them, even though Saturday, the seventh day, begins at some point between sundown and when the stars appear in the nighttime sky. You probably heard it uh, said that they would hold up a, a black and a red thread, and at the point when they could no longer tell the difference between the two, that was when the Sabbath started. Well, Orthodox Jews today, conservative Jews today, and, and Messianic Judaism, many of them, As soon as the sun is down, the Sabbath starts. Why? Because they don't want to run the risk of violating the Sabbath. And the Sabbath continues all the way to the next day until the stars appear in the sky. And so, in effect, they're adding hours to the Sabbath day. They treat the Sabbath as some fragile thing that can easily be broken, and so they must protect it. They've got to put it in bubble wrap and make sure that it can't be broken. But for most Christians in America, that's not the problem. Most Christians in the U.S. 
treat Sunday, the Lord's Day, as a second Saturday. We do whatever we want to, which might include going to church, but maybe not. If there are fish to be caught or a game to be watched, then church is kind of optional. The Sabbath, brothers and sisters, is a gift from God. It's neither easily broken, not in, in, the, in the fragile glass-like sense, nor is it intended to be ignored. It's a gift. God created you to need rest. You are a creature. You are dust. You're not God. You need rest. You need rest one day in seven. You need a break. God created you to need this break to remind you that you're not Him, that you're a creature. And we all need this. The Sabbath is a gift from God. Isaiah 58, 13 says, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly. God's people, Israel, in this, at this point in their history, when Isaiah is receiving this prophecy from the Lord, they were guilty of profaning the Sabbath. They were essentially kicking it with their foot by doing whatever they wanted on God's holy day. But he tells them in this verse that if they call the Sabbath a, a, Sabbath a delight, if they honor it, then he continues in verse 14, you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. And so rather than viewing the Lord's Day as a burden, as a drag, as a day filled with restrictions that make it impossible for me to do what I want to do, we should instead see it for the delight that it is. It is a gift from God, which enables us to rest from our earthly labors. It gives us a, a, a break from the work that takes up the other days of our week. If we treat it like any other day, we are robbing ourselves of this wonderful gift that God's given to us. Let me give you just a brief story as an example. Growing up, I grew up on a dairy farm. We, we tended not to, to tend the crops in the field on Sundays, but we had to milk cows every single day, twice a day. Every single day of the week, without exception. But we would milk the cows, we would get the job done, we'd go to church on Sunday, we'd come back home, we'd milk the cows again on Sunday afternoon or evening, we'd finish things up. That was just the, the cycle of life. But we were not strict Sabbath observers, I have to admit, we weren't. Fast forward to when I started seminary in my late or early 30s, early to mid-30s. Never really been a strict Sabbath observer First semester, I'm in first semester Greek. Guess what took place on Monday mornings in first semester Greek? Quizzes. Now, you might question the wisdom of your professor at, a, at an institution that still at that point had a sign up on the tennis courts that was apparently placed there by John Murray that said, no playing tennis on Sundays or on the Lord's Day. You might question whether the professor should have assigned a Greek quiz on Monday morning. But that notwithstanding, on Sunday afternoons, Sunday evenings, I would start studying for the next day, getting ready, doing my homework, getting ready for that quiz, because languages are not something that come naturally to me. And we visited a church, Jen and I, this was four kids, we visited a church, um, a PCA church in a neighboring town. And I remember, this was in the evening, I remember talking to the associate pastor, he was good friends with our pastor of our church down in North Carolina. And I said, well, I've got to go home. I've got to do some homework. I've got to get ready for the Greek quiz tomorrow. And he very gently, and, I, and this dear brother, Greg McDougal is his name. And he said to me, and I barely knew him, but because of my connection with my pastor, good friends with him, he said, Joe, 
why don't you just treat the Lord's Day as a day of rest? Just don't study. Go home and enjoy it. And I, I'm happy to say that I didn't graduate with honors. I didn't really do honors at Westminster. I didn't graduate with honors. I didn't have a 4.0 GPA. But my GPA was just fine and way better than when I was in college. Way better. Magnitudes. Orders of magnitude better. And I didn't study again on the Lord's Day for the rest of my time in seminary. And thankfully, Greg spoke to me within the first few weeks of my seminary seminary career. He, he encouraged me. He didn't threaten me. He didn't break out the stick. He, he held a carrot before me and said, rest in the Lord and trust in him and allow him to take care of you. And he did. I'm, I'm not the greatest Greek scholar. There are others uh, that you know who are better at Greek and Hebrew than I am. But the Lord blessed that. He honored that. And I would encourage you to do the same thing, to see the Lord's Day as the gift that it is, a way for you to rest. Remember, the Sabbath is the Lord's Day. We're going to get to that more fully in the next section. It belongs to the Lord, but He's given it to us. He's given it to us so that we'll have a time to worship Him and trust that even though we aren't working on this day, God will provide it for all of our needs. He's going to take care of us. Now, you may be in a position where you have to work on the Lord's Day. You might be one of those essential workers that we heard so much about two or three years ago, right? Medical professionals, first responders, members of the military, airline pilots, things like that. For some reason, liquor store workers were included in the essential worker category. Never quite figured that one out, but in every state of the union, they were in there. Actually, I do know why. You don't want you actually don't want a lot of people going around with delirium tremors all over the, all over the country. I get that. Um, but some of you, in order to keep your job, you felt that it's necessary to work on a Sunday. Works of necessity, works of mercy, those things are permitted on the Sabbath day according to our standards. And you see this is a work of necessity. I have to work on the Lord's day to do it. And maybe that's true. But if that's the case, I will be happy to write for you on your behalf a letter to your employer stating that, that, you, that you have this desire not to work on Sundays and that our church seeks to honor the Sabbath day. And I'll quote from our confession if you want me to do so. The Supreme Court just this week, just Thursday of this past week, I believe it was, handed down a decision related to a man who used to work for the Postal Service that should make it easier to get a religious accommodation for having Sundays off. And amazingly, when you think about the other decisions that were handed down this past week, amazingly, that was unanimous. All nine justices said, hey, this is a pretty good idea. That doesn't guarantee it, but, you, but the employer has to at least try to accommodate your sincerely held religious beliefs. But avoiding laxity on the one side, just to completely ignoring the fact that the Sabbath exists, and legalism on the other, it's very difficult. Some Christians wear their Sabbath observance as a badge of honor, engaging in conservative Christian virtue signaling to show others around them how serious a Christian they are. I, I, I'm a true Christian. You see, I don't do none of that stuff on the Lord's Day. And that seems to be what Paul is getting at in the next passage in verse 18 when he says to let no one disqualify you by insisting on asceticism 
among other things. Asceticism is a severe form of Christianity. Don't do this. You've got to show how strong you are. You resist urges to, to do things that you're actually free to do. And so we should remember the Sabbath day. We should remember to keep it holy. But that doesn't mean that we have to telegraph to everyone else how well we're honoring the day. Our desire, our sole desire should be to delight in the Lord and the gift that he's given to us, worshiping him and resting in Christ's completed work. And that takes us to the final point of the sermon this morning, day of resurrection. Ultimately, the Lord's day, the Christian Sabbath, is a reminder to us of what Jesus accomplished accomplished for us by being resurrected from the dead. On the very day that Jesus was raised from the dead, what were his disciples doing later on that day? They had gathered that evening, hiding from the Jews in the upper room. They were scared to death, but there they were, and then all of a sudden Jesus is there among them. And again, the next Sunday, they were gathered together. This time Thomas was with them. He wasn't there the previous week. He heard about Jesus coming. He said, no way. I don't believe it. Let me put my hands in his side. Let me touch his, his hands, and then I'll believe. Jesus shows up the following Lord's Day evening where they're gathered again together. Now, it's not clear when Christians started referring to the first day of the week, Sunday, as the Lord's Day, but from the very beginning, they were gathering on the Lord's Day. And by the end of the first century, for sure, it was the accepted accepted name for the day among Christians. John writes in Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. John uses this term in Revelation 1.10 without any explanation. He doesn't doesn't feel the need to explain. By the Lord's Day, I mean the first day of the week, commonly known as Sundays. He knows his readers will know what he's talking of because the term was in common use by that time. And they referred to it as the Lord's Day because the most important event in history took place on that day, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the worship of Uh, uh, the day of worship for God's people was shifted from the seventh day to the first day of the week. We celebrate Easter, Resurrection Day, every week of the year, not just in the spring, because Christ's resurrection is central to our faith. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then we of all people are most to be pitied because our faith is futile. We are still in our sins. We are hopeless. But He has been raised from the dead which means that we have been raised with him. We have been set free from the prison of sin. We don't have to keep the law in order to earn salvation for ourselves. Jesus Christ kept the law for us, and his resurrection from the dead is proof that he has saved us from God's punishment for our failure to keep his law. And so honoring the Sabbath day should be a drudgery for us. It's a delight. We remember This is the day on which our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was raised. So use the day, the Lord's day, the day of the week on which he was raised from the dead to reflect on his resurrection and everything that means for you. You can rest from the toil of trying to earn your own salvation. And the Lord's day reminds you of this by giving you a weekly reminder that it is finished. Christ's work on your behalf is done. You don't have to add to it. You can't. But honoring the Lord's Day also serves as a reminder to us us of the rest that is to come. Hebrews 4, 3 and 4 talks about this. The rest is coming, an eternal rest into which you will enter when Christ Jesus returns. 
When one of our own goes to be with the Lord, we often say that the person has entered into their eternal rest. And each week on the Lord's Day, you get a taste of that eternal rest. We often, uh, also often say uh, that our weekly worship services give us a taste of heaven. It's just a little taste. It's not a perfect taste. But it is a taste of what we will enjoy forever when we go to be with the Lord. But this all goes together. You enjoy a brief rest, which gives you a sense of rest that you will enjoy forever with Christ. You also enjoy a taste of the worship of God that you will participate in with all of the saints who have gone on to be with the Lord, with the whole heavenly host. And so, brothers and sisters, I commend the Lord's Day to you, the Christian Sabbath. Take it. Keep it. Enjoy it. Don't lament the things you don't get to do. Instead, so order your week so that you don't have to do those things on the Lord's Day. And if if you do, if you've ordered your week in such a way and things just fall apart then okay, say to yourself, this is a deed of mercy, a deed of necessity. This is something I was going to try to do, but I couldn't do. I was providentially hindered from doing. I've got to do it this day. Try. Don't be legalistic about it. Don't be a Pharisee about it. Don't project your righteousness or promote yourself to your neighbors and show them how good you are because you're keeping this day as a serious Christian ought to do. Enjoy it. Rest. It is a taste of the rest that you will enjoy forever. It was on this day of the week that Jesus Christ was raised for your justification. On this day, the first day of the week, Sunday, the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, Jesus Christ won salvation for you and for me and for everyone who believes in Him. And so this day... It points us to the good news, the gospel, if we rightly observe it, if we appreciate it for what it is, if we turn our foot away from kicking at it, resisting it, but instead understand that it is a gift from our risen Savior intended for us to enjoy Him. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news.